Luke chapter 9, we want to be looking today at verses uh, 28 to 50 uh, in this passage and that, that I pray God will use in our lives. I don't know if you're like me, but um, when I want to check out a movie, I like to go and look at a trailer. And you can do that all the time. Go on, ah, it looks like a pretty good movie. I think I'll go see it or I won't see it, right? I mean, that's kind of what you do. You go to the trailer. You kind of like a sneak preview, don't you? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus gives us a sneak preview. Now, he's walking uh, a very fine line because here's the problem. You, you know this. When Jesus came into this earth, People had this idea of an incredibly glorious king that was going to push out those crummy Romans. Give us our land back, right? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of what they're thinking. And he comes on the scene and he says, I'm going to do something much greater than that. I'm going to forgive you from the inside out. And he's going to slowly lead us, and especially in Luke 9 and following, he's going to remind us again and again and again the only way there can ultimately be some kind of an earthly transformed kingdom is because Christ will have to come and die for us, right? So he, he's, he's introduced that to his men, but they're scratching their head. They're saying, that's not, that's not how we thought you were going to do this king stuff. So on the one hand, Yes, there's a, he's a glorious king. Yes, there's a glorious kingdom coming. Yes, we're already experiencing it now. But, 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 but. It will come through the cross. But having said that, here in verse 28, he gives them a glimpse, a sneak preview, a trailer of what is to come. Because that is part of the package. It's just got to be connected with everything else. We call it the transfiguration. Look what the text says, verse 28. You have notes in your, in, in your handout if you want to look at those. I'm not going to read. That's something for you to look at later or now or whatever you want to do. But I'm not going to read through the, the outline. Verse 28. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to a mountain to pray. Now, if this was Mount Heron, it's over 9,000 feet high. So wherever they were on that mountain, and you, you kind of your sense as you're reading this passage, when the actual scene takes place, it's nighttime, which is why these guys are tired. Okay, so kind of keep all that in mind. So they're trudging up this mountain. How long have they been removed from the other nine guys? We don't know exactly. Period of time. Maybe only a couple hours a day or so. But anyway, they go up this mountain. In verse 29, while he was praying, now, I, I can't prove any of this. I, I've wondered about it. That's all I can say. Okay, that, that, that's all I can say. Um, in Luke's gospel, you read about Jesus going away and praying more often than you do in any of the other gospels. That, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I've wondered, and I, I don't know, if there's been any of these kinds of things going on between Christ and God that, that, that we see now, and these guys kind of get a glimpse of it. I don't know, but this is an incredible glimpse. But again, Jesus is praying, which you see running all the way through, which becomes a model for us. While he's praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white 
and gleaming. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Now, I want you to notice something. What Peter, James, and John doing when this happens? They're sound asleep. And look, if they've been trudging up that mountain, it's nighttime. They're watching Jesus pray. Look, I've fallen asleep when I've prayed sometimes at night. How, haven't you ever done that? You know, you're praying and you start praying, you're like, yeah, Lord, I brought you. <laughs> and you wake up later, you know. I mean, does that happen to you or is it just to me? Well, if it's nighttime and somebody else is praying, even if it's Jesus, the eyes get heavy. And initially, they're sleeping through this thing. It's just incredible. Moses and Elijah come. Well, that's kind of interesting. Why, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Isaiah and Daniel? Joseph, maybe. I don't know. Abraham. I think there's possible several options. It is interesting to me. I don't know that these are the main reasons, but it is interesting to me that both Moses and Elijah had a unique experience with God on a mountain in which they saw his glory. Remember Moses when he was on the mountain? And he couldn't look at it, but, but, but it was like the glory of God went by, right? Remember that? The Shekinah glory of God. And, and, and so, so perhaps that's part of it. At least it's interesting. And both of them kind of departed in interesting ways, didn't they? Moses dies quite healthy, and who buries him? God, where? We have no idea. And Elijah, man, he's off in the chariot. So both, I mean, they have these mountain experiences, both of them, and so here they are with Jesus talking about his departure, his exodus, because it's going to trump them all. Moses and Elijah, Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the prophet calling people back to God. And one other thing, you flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, there is a prophet coming who will far exceed me. He's special. He's chosen. So Moses, the lawgiver, is looking to somebody beyond him. When Malachi writes, he talks about an Elijah-like figure coming one day. And now, as his disciples are sound asleep, you have Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about his departure. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and everything connected to it, folks. I don't know about you, but that's one message I don't want to be missing. Well, they wake up. That's a good thing. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. <laughs> Did you ever get startled out of sleep? 
Did you ever say dumb things when you were in that situation? I mean, that, that is exactly what happens in this past. I mean, people out there smiling, thinking, oh, yeah, remember what I, yeah, well, we won't share any stories, but we all got them. And dear Peter, I mean, dear Peter, you got to love the guy, but he really does speak before he thinks, doesn't he? And, and can you imagine, though, you, you wake up and all of a sudden you're thinking, now, 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 people always come to this passage and they say, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Uh, did they have name tags on? <laughs> you know? And my guess is as they spoke, you know, Moses' name and Elijah's name were, were used at some point. I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But somehow they knew it was Moses and Elijah. But can you imagine at night, pitch black, with only the stars, Mount Hermon. And they woke up, and brighter than the noon sun itself is Christ standing there in all his glory. It's like his divinity, just the veil of the humanity could not hold the divinity just showing forth. Now that's startling. And I don't blame these guys. I mean, Peter's going like, holy mackerel. And so he's just thinking like, what do I say? Well, it's what he says. And it came about as, as they were parting from him, Moses and Elijah ready to move on. Peter's like, no, no, we're hospitable. Um, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. I mean, this is like really good, although we just woke up. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke says this, not realizing what he was saying. That is so Luke. I mean, that's so, that's so Peter. So Peter, we'll just like, what kind of, you guys are all really important. No, 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 not a good thing to say, Peter, right? While he was saying this, cloud formed and began to overshadow them. Think about the clouds in the Old Testament. Cloud that will lead the people of Israel. A cloud that will come down on the tabernacle. When it comes down on that tabernacle, we read that Moses himself doesn't go into the tabernacle when that cloud descends. Cloud comes down on the temple in Solomon's time and the priests don't go near. And that cloud, according to Ezekiel, then leaves the temple. Nobody can be in that cloud. Unless you're with Jesus. So here is God, glory in his son, an overshadowed cloud. I mean, it's an incredible picture. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, rightly so. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. What would that have been like? I don't know if you're Peter, you're thinking, oh man, I did it again. That three tabernacle thing just doesn't quite go, <laughs> does it? Because what they're saying is Moses and Elijah we're merely there to point to the ultimate expression, which is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
that's what really counts. That's what really matters. And I'm sure Peter's thinking like, <laughs> right? Did it again. They kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now, according to the other Gospels, Jesus told them not to tell anybody. Jesus keeps saying that, doesn't he? And again, here's the problem. Did they get a glimpse of reality? Absolutely. Is he the majestic, as we said, majesty, right? It, it, as he is the glorious, majestic king. The only one, the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Everything's about him. That's all true. And he will rule over the entire world with full authority. All true, all true. But here's the problem. The way there is through the cross. And if you focus too much on the peak, on, on, on this, this preview, you'll de-emphasize what, Luke wants, what Jesus wants to emphasize. Does that make sense? So he will tell them, guys, I've given you this as an encouragement that you might see him in all of his glory, but not that you'll think that he's going to come in all of his fullness right now. There's a cross, which is the means to that. So don't tell anybody what you saw. How hard would that be? Hey, how'd it go up on the mountain? Oh, pretty good. What'd you guys do? Slept. I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what they said. But, man, I don't know about you, man, but I would have gone like, uh, uh, I, like I can't tell you. You know? But they did it, and that was good. I mean, so you, you got to give them. Uh, Raphael, the 16th century painter, and you can go online and Google it, but has this incredible picture. And it's, it's got, at the very top of the picture, it's got the transfiguration of Christ with, with the three. And then right down below, it's got a boy who's demon-possessed with the other nine disciples who don't have a clue what to do. So here is Jesus in all of his glory coming down and ministering to one who suffers. Notice what he does here, because in this particular passage, the disciples missed something. This is hard. Let me, let me read it to you, because you're going to go like, really, Jesus said that? Yep, he did. Verse 37. It came about on the next day, so apparently he got through the night, and next day they came down at some point, got down to where everybody else was, that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. So here is a man who has one child. This is it. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he screams. It throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls at him, it scarcely leaves him. Can you imagine what it would be like living with that boy? We read in one of the other gospel accounts that the boy had the problem since he was a child. And it doesn't mean that the demon was upon him all the time. It was periodical. But every time it came on, it was purely destructive. Satan always tries to mar 
the image of God. He hates humanity. And his horde of demons hate humanity. And we have this picture of this boy. This demon comes on him. And he's tormented. He's thrown into the water, into fire, whatever the case may be. You barely think he's going to. And he's just foaming. He's convulsing. I mean, what would that be like? And the father doesn't know what. Do you grab the child and hold him? What do you do? Do you just wait? And the father has lived with this year after. And then finally, the demon will leave for a period of time. And when it leaves, it, 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 it torments him. And, and the boy struggles. And then it's gone. And the father has learned just to wait for the next episode. And he's lived years that way. Well, he's heard about this band of disciples of Christ who follow Christ who've actually exercised some demons. Found that in chapter 9 too, didn't we? So he comes to them. Jesus isn't with them. Just nine of them are there. And this is what he says after giving this story to Jesus. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's pure. You read this story and you say, oh, it, there's so much pain. There's so much sorrow. There's so, so much hurt, so much suffering. He says, I begged your disciples to cast it out. And they could not. Does that strike you as strange? They were just on a tour. Casting out demons left and right. Then I read this passage. It says, I came to them and they couldn't do it. And then to make things worse, look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted or, 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 or corrupted generation, crooked generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Holy mackerel. Who's Jesus talking to? Seems in every gospel when you read it, you keep coming back to the same thing. Jesus is talking about his disciples. Well, like the uh, unbelieving, crooked generation, isn't that what you say to people that like are unbelievers, <laughs> you know, that don't believe in Jesus? Yeah. Can God's people live like that sometimes? Can we? We can. A couple things. Is it possible, because if you remember when they were exercising demons earlier and healing, et cetera, et cetera, is it possible to be given authority and power by God to minister and then to begin to believe your own stuff and try to do it on your own strength? Do we ever do that? You know, Tim and I do a lot of preaching and teaching. You know what can happen sometimes? I can say to myself, I can pull this one off. I know how to study a text. I know how to read the languages. And I'll say a quick prayer right before I get up. Do you think that ever happens to preachers? It does. God gives authority and he gives power. And sometimes we see him working in our lives. And then we start thinking we can do it. I think that's what's happening here with these guys. Yeah, bring him over here. We can do this one. 
And they couldn't. It's not recorded in Luke, but one of the other gospels, the disciples were later going to say, hey, why can't we do this? And Jesus says, this comes forth by prayer. Men, you don't minister for me ever apart from me. It's always me that, in, that infuses you and empowers you and helps you. And you're living just like those people that don't know me, an unbelieving and crooked generation that can pull it off on their own. I've wondered, and I don't know the answer to this. I've wondered how Jesus says verse 41. I mean, does he say, oh, unbelieving and crooked generation, bring him here. I don't think so. Or does Jesus say it with deep hurt? One believing generation. How long? How long must I deal with you and you don't respond? Bring him here. I'd argue more the second than the first. But Jesus... In his grace and his mercy, notice what happens, verse 42. While the boy was still approaching, think about this, folks. This is incredible. All this kind of hope, Jesus says, bring him here. As he's approaching, the demon is doing one last fling. The demon dashes him to the ground, throws him into a convulsion. Jesus looks and rebukes the unclean spirit and instantly heals the boy. What would that have looked like? Convulsing, Jesus says, stop. He picks the boy up. The boy has no bruises. He's all healed. There's nothing. And he hands him back to his father. Jesus enters into our suffering and ministers. And the disciples are standing back saying, Wow. Matter of fact, everybody's going to say, wow. Look at what it says. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Remember what God said from the cloud about his son back on transfiguration? He said what? Listen to him. And now Jesus says, I'm going to say something to you. Let it go down deep into your soul. Listen to this. It's important. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 45. Does verse 45 say this? They fully understood. They put the cross together with the kingdom. They rejoiced in the fact that Christ was going to die for them. Say any of that? Not mine either. If you find a Bible that says that, get rid of it. Okay. Verse 45. They did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now, there's all kinds of debates over this verse as to what, you know, who is the one that keeps them from seeing and so forth. And, and I, I would argue, argue this. When Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to, to men, it wasn't like the disciples said, hey, what did he just say? Like, did he, I, I, no, they understood what he was saying. 
They understood he was saying, I'm going to be handed over to, to men. I'm going to suffer from men. That wasn't their problem. What they didn't understand is how in the world that fits in with what they understood about the Messiah. That was their problem. And here's the problem, folks. I was going to take my glasses off, but then we'd have a huge mess with this. I can't do it. If I had a set of glasses now that were blue, and I put blue lenses onto my face, what do I see? Blue. Here's the problem. They had blue glasses that had their whole idea what it meant for Jesus to be King Messiah. And being given over to, to sinful men didn't quite work. And so rather than taking off the glasses, they just said, like, how does that fit in with what we know? And their glasses kept them from understanding. Do you see? You cannot understand Christ apart from the cross. You can't understand his mission. Now, Jesus did more than die on the cross. Or else, we would have no Christianity. But he never did anything less. He must die, be buried, be resurrected, and, be and ascend as the coming king who will come back who rules now and will come back and fully lay claim to the world as we know it. That's what we know, folks, right? And you must keep all of that in balance because all if all you have is a king with all kinds of power and authority, you're thinking, we can like do anything today. It'll be great. We were talking about this in Sunday school a little bit today. Tim, it makes me think back to some of the things we were saying in Sunday school. It's true. We can find it all over the Bible. Um, and what we have to see is so much of our Christian life is hard, isn't it? There's suffering, there's sacrifice, there's ministry to others. And so if we solely see this, we may miss that. And if, and if we think, yeah, but the Christian life is just like a joyless existence of you can't do this, and you can't do that, then you're missing it too. No, it's like Michael Card says, it is the joy of following Christ. To be a Christ follower is to follow the God who has come and become one of us and has died for us on the cross of Calvary. We get to walk in his path and, and bask in his glory for all, for all eternity. That's a pretty good deal. That should move us to joy. Now, while this is all happening, the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. And again, we don't know exactly how this all happened, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to conjecture here, okay? So fair enough, I know I'm doing it. Because what happens in the very next verse, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. How do you get from verse 45 to 46? I don't know, but maybe it looked like this. I don't know. They're walking along. Maybe Peter's talking to James and John. And, and, and they're saying, man, that, that transfiguration thing, man, was like dynamite. <laughs> like, wasn't that like unbelievable? How about the power? What he did with that kid? I mean, poop, just like that. Man, that's incredible. Yeah, the, 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 
being handed over to, to men, I, whatever that's all about. But, but wow. Yeah, you know, kingdom means people got to rule. That means us. It means us. It means me. I'm thinking I'm probably better than you are. No, no, I'm better than, I mean, I don't know, but it may probably moved along that trajectory somehow, right? They saw all of this, and all they could think about is pecking order. Like, where do I find myself in this whole thing? And Jesus says this, they missed again the cross. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side, said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this one, this is the one who is great. My world, the American culture, teaches me that greatness is bound up at being at the top of the pecking order, doesn't it? You're not great if you're a janitor in a company. You're great if you're the CEO, right? So everybody knows to be great is to be a person with power and influence that can say no, yes, and people run and do whatever they have to do. I was, I was at a meeting recently this week. Um, I'll try to keep it so general that you have no idea what I'm talking about. And, and, and there was the guy who was running the program, and he had a bunch of people working for him. And I was there with another friend, and we were talking to the guy. And I was watching these guys in relationship to him. And I mean, just like, yes, people. Like, he would say, well, I think we should do this. And I'm thinking, like, wow, man, that guy, this guy carries a lot of weight and authority. It's kind of like whatever he says, that's what they did. And our culture says, if you're going to be great, you want to be that guy. Because it's all about kingdom rule, right? No. It's all about following a savior who sacrifices himself for others. You see, it's very different. So he takes a child. I guess it would be like me taking one of these, one of the guys here in the front row. I'm not, I'm not going to bring you up. So, no, no I, I won't do that. But, 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 but even younger. Take a, take a young child and put him right up in front of them. And when he did that, in antiquity, are, child pres- are children precious? Yes, if they're yours. No, if they're somebody else's. Okay? So he puts a child before them. And he says, whatever you do to them, you do to me. And what you do to me, you do to God. And greatness is not bound up in moving up the ladder. Greatness is bound up in moving down the ladder so that everyone is loved. Do you see the difference? So the child represents the insignificant people in our lives. Jesus says, that's who I am. And I'll I, I tell you, I'll I tell you, I, 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 I don't know if you're like me, but... Um, do I sometimes look at people and um, kind of grade them on their worth? 
you think we ever do that? I hate to tell you, folks, I do it. In God's good grace, the Spirit at those times challenges me by saying, what are you, nuts? Who do you think you are? <laughs> right? But we grieve people. And Jesus ministers to people. It's not about using them to get what I want. It's about giving to them to the glory of God. And if nobody sees, it's okay. I don't know if I've ever read this to you. Ruth Kalkin, these words are haunting to me. Ruth Kalkin says this. It's called, I, wa I Wonder. She says, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? Would that be hard? And the beauty of the gospel We follow Jesus wherever he leads us. And he leads us to people that others think are insignificant. And we give our lives to minister to them. And it doesn't matter what people think. You can't just focus on the glory. Don't lose the glory. Man, we need to remember the glory. It's wonderful. Remember the cross. Well, the pressure is almost too much for poor um, John at this point. So what do you do when you're feeling convicted? You point somewhere else. Look what John does in verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. Well, You've got to give the guy some high marks. At least he was successful. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Do you know how Doug Finkbeiner manifests his self-centeredness? A couple ways. Sometimes I just want to be better than you. I want people to think I'm better than you. And so um, it's all about moving up. And Jesus says, Doug, be Christ-centered rather than self-centered and minister to everybody. Okay, Lord, that's okay within the group. But Lord, my group's better than the other group. A little bit of clickishness, you know? And, and folks, this text is not about saying we don't ever evaluate other ministries and so forth because it's, we, we have to be about those kinds of things. But what happens when my evaluation comes from a heart of envy? That's the problem, isn't it? I want to be better than you, and I want my group to be better than that group. And Jesus says, you've missed what I'm doing. Let me be central, and you'll minister to everybody. Let me be central, and you'll praise God for what he's doing in all other ministries. 
Because it's not about you and your group. It's about me and my glory. So you get done reading this whole passage. And I have a little bit of a prop summary statement to try to pull it all together. And I guess it's this. When we see Christ for who he is, we should listen to him completely by serving him exclusively. See Jesus for who he is. Is he the glorious God who will rule forever? Is that true, folks? Yes. Is he the suffering servant who has humbled himself, died on a cross, so that you and I can be set free? Yes. See him in his glory. See him in his sacrifice. And then move back into our world saying, God, I trust in you to work through me. And God, by your grace, for your glory, I will minister to anybody that you bring in my life and praise your name for what you're doing in it with other groups too. That's a great way to live, folks. What if the chapel lives that way? What if that's our great obsession? We'll be talking about three or four buildings or at some point if we continue like that, Tim, won't we? Because God will do what only God can do. Father.